Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. I'm Joe Zalot, your host. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. On January 20th of this year, Joe Biden took the oath of office as the 46th President of the United States. Unfortunately, Since the inauguration, Biden has used his presidency to both promote and expand abortion in the U.S. and internationally. However, has Joe Biden always supported abortion? Today I'm joined by Tom Shakely, Chief Engagement Officer at Americans United for Life. In this first part of the interview, Tom explains what Americans United for Life is and the work it does. We then discuss and critique Joe Biden's record on life issues as well as the records of key members of his administration. Tom Shakely, welcome to Bioethics On Air. You know, it's such a pleasure to be with you, Joe. I know we had you on our podcast at American Center for Life, gosh, too long ago, and it's nice to uh, nice to now be on uh, Bioethics On Air. Yeah, I, re- I remember that podcast was about an, uh, an hour and a half ago. It was about a year and a half ago. And, <laughs> and I remember at that time when we finished that one up, I said, Tom, we got to get you on Bioethics on Air. And you said, yes. And it's, you know, here we are. Something weird happened in the world. I don't know. Uh, what, I, yeah, some, I don't know, some COVID thing. I don't know. Okay. All in God's time. Oh, it is. All right. So Tom, this is uh, your first time on our podcast. And as we do with every new guest, I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a bit about your background, specifically education, work experience leading up to your present position at Americans United for Life. Absolutely. Yeah. So I grew up in the Philadelphia area, actually, where, of course, the the great National Catholic Bioethics Center is headquartered. I grew up in in Bucks County and uh, it was a Catholic family that I grew up in. Uh, my, my grandfather was Presbyterian. My grandmother was Catholic. And you know, uh, thanks be to God, they raised the family Catholic. And so, you know, my, my mother and, and aunts and uncles and so forth were all, you know, a part of my childhood. And I share that because, you know, from my earliest days, I was fortunate to grow up there in Bucks County in an intergenerational home, uh, in a faithful home. Um, my father was not present um, because, you know, he, uh, he and my mother, you know, got uh, pregnant unexpectedly. They were students at LaSalle University. And uh, when the news of the pregnancy came down, you know, it was just one of those like so many, right, uh, mothers and fathers in America. When that news comes, people react differently. And at the time, he wasn't interested in being a father. And, uh, you know, fortunately, uh, my mother was interested in being a mother. And so here I am. And uh, so, you know, once I got past the age of reason and so forth, you're kind of you start to become aware of, of these things and the gift gift nature of that. Uh, and you know, pro-life, uh, involvement and support was, uh, was a part of our home as well from the earliest days. I remember, you know, seeing, uh, updates from the pro-life union of greater Philadelphia, you know, mm-hmm. those, those mailers would come every month. And so those things were on the periphery of my vision. Uh, I was fortunate to go to, to Catholic school at Nativity of our Lord in Warminster. And then Archbishop Wood uh, eventually went off to Penn state, um, which was, uh, which was a great experience as well. Majored in political science there. And, you know, didn't start out initially doing pro-life work uh, as a career or as a vocation. That really came over the course of time. Um, I started out in journalism. I was interested in being a journalist and telling stories. Um, and there was a great, uh, a great newspaper called the Philadelphia Bulletin, uh, where I worked uh, for a time, uh, then did some reporting for National Review uh, in the 2010 uh, midterms. Got to cover uh, folks, national figures and local figures all across the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. It was a lot of fun. Um, but over time that, you know, there was this kind of pull and an interest in pro-life issues. I had gotten involved as a volunteer 
with the pro-life union, which I mentioned, Mm -hmm. uh, and had been following these issues more closely. And that led in time uh, actually on a retreat uh, at Malvern Retreat House. There's so many Philadelphia references oh, here. Right? I bet I've been there a number of times. It's, it's a beautiful, it's like, the, I think the largest Catholic retreat house in the country. Uh, it's a great place worth looking up um, and, and worth going on a retreat uh, there. But uh, I was at Malvern on a retreat. I think this was probably, no, uh, what it would have been, it would have been something like November uh, of 2014 or early uh, 2015. And it was there uh, on that retreat that I met uh, Bobby Schindler, mm-hmm. who was introduced to me. And I wasn't aware of who he was at the time. He and I got to, to speak. And it turns out, you know, for those who aren't aware, Bobby Schindler is the brother of Terry Schiavo. Now, the Terry Schiavo case was important in our home, not just because it was a national story, um, but also uh, because it was a local story. You know, Terry Schiavo uh, graduated from Archbishop Wood. And so the the year that I was a senior at Archbishop Wood was the year that uh, Terry Schiavo was put to death, really, uh, by by a state-sanctioned killing uh, in Florida in that hospice, uh, where courts determined after a long, you know, decade-plus struggle, the courts determined that this woman uh, who was not terminal, who was not dying, she was not near death, uh, she had a brain injury, right? Uh, the course determined that nonetheless, she could be killed by means of deprivation of food and water. Um, and they did that by removing her feeding tube. And so that was an issue that came to the fore because, you know, the national media at the time descended on Archbishop Wood. Actually, they wanted to get really? interviews. Uh, they wanted to hear from students. And even then, right, even when you're, you know, 14 or 15 or 16, you know, like what they're looking for is like the quote of the, you know, uh, earnest, but perhaps a bit naive 14 year old or something, basically giving cover to what's happening, right? Like right. we, of course, you know, we don't really believe in what the church teaches was, was the angle they were looking yeah. for. Um, and, uh, so kind of aware of, of the, the threat of preformed narratives, I guess is the way I would put it, uh, early on. And so the Terry Shibo story was, was personal for us in a communal sense in that way. And so meeting Bobby, um, you know, led to a series of conversations where I, I came on board with the Terry Schiavo Life and Hope Network, the organization that he and his family founded to advocate for uh, persons with disabilities, for medically vulnerable persons, for patients' rights uh, against denial of care situations like that, because they're still ongoing, right? Mm-hmm. And over time, that led to uh, led to relationships uh, with uh, many good folks at organizations like Alliance Defending Freedom and eventually Americans United for Life. And it's become it's become my career and it's become a great uh, a great experience in meeting Americans across the country uh, who are doing important life affirming work. Yeah. Yeah, sounds good. It's interesting because we did a, a podcast with Bobby Schindler. It's probably about four or five episodes ago, and uh, you know, just a small world. It, you're not on because of that, but it's just it's just really interesting at how you know the stories uh, they all come together. Tom, what's uh, Americans United for Life, and what does it seek to do? Americans United for Life is the nation's first uh, national pro-life group. It's an amazing history we have. The, the group this year in 2021 is celebrating its 50th anniversary. Wow. Uh, and I say celebrating, you know, not because, you know, marking something like Roe v. Wade, which handed, happened two years after our founding, is, is something we're happy about, but celebrating really because uh, we've done good and important work. We were founded before Roe v. Wade. Uh, in part to advocate against what became Roe, 
Um, but with a larger mission, with a larger vision, you know, our founders, uh, were based in Chicago in the late 1960s, early 1970s. They were seeing what was happening in the culture. You know, as you know, I mean, Roe and, and that jurisprudence didn't come from nowhere. You know, it came from some cultural presuppositions as much as anything else. And so Americans United for Life was founded um, really to, you know, advance the human right to life in culture, law, and policy. That's our mission. And we have this broad view of human rights that it's not just abortion. It's not just assisted suicide. It's not sort of just like a, a set of, you know, as they say in politics, social issues. It's a whole spectrum of connected uh, human rights issues, bioethical issues, of medical issues um, that ultimately speak to, you know, who the human person is, why the human person is, uh, and, and what our ultimate end is. And so, you know, we, we do this work uh, in Washington, D.C., where we're headquartered on Capitol Hill. We work with U.S. senators, uh, House members. Uh, we work with folks in the executive branch, and, and we advocate to the judicial branch. Um, and we also work across the states, in every state, uh, helping state lawmakers uh, who are interested in passing good, robust, uh, judicially defensible pro-life law and policy. We help them, uh, we advise them, and uh, we make an impact. Yeah. Is AUL a, I don't know how to say this correctly, is it a, it's not a religious organization, but does it have a faith perspective behind it? Yeah. You know, we were founded, you know, as a team, right, advancing these human rights. And so we're the voice for millions, um, mm -hmm. but we're nonpartisan. Okay. Um, you know, we're, we're working to create lifelong connections between people of all ages, backgrounds, and beliefs. And so you can see that e even amongst our founders, you know, who came from, all sorts of faith traditions uh, and non-faith traditions, um, you know, from Catholic to Episcopal to Unitarian um, to folks who are coming at it purely from an interest in, in sound medical science uh, right. or purely in, in an interest in, you know, a secular sense of human rights. Uh, so we, we welcome all and we work with all. Cool. I, I said this in the, in the introduction and I'm really interested to hear about this. What actually is a chief engagement officer? And what are your responsibilities? It's such a great question. You know, the chief engagement officer title is a fairly new one, especially in the NGO and the nonprofit space. And, you know, at American Center for Life, you know, chief engagement officer means uh, essentially all the work that we do that's not uh, legal, right? We have a legal team <laughs> and we have an engagement team. And so, you know, um, Steve Aiden is a great attorney. Steve is our chief legal officer and general counsel. Steve comes from uh, the Alliance Defending Freedom World. That's where he was before mm -hmm. Americans United for Life. And Steve leads our great team of attorneys that does so much of this work, as I mentioned, with state lawmakers and with others, um, you know, making sure that, that our voice is sound and that people are getting good advice. Uh, and that, that good pro-life law and policy is happening. But then on the, the side of public engagement, communications, donor relations, always important for a nonprofit. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, those are the things that engagement focuses on and translating our good work uh, for everyone uh, and hopefully making it accessible for, uh, for new supporters. So what in this role does a typical day look like for you if there is such a thing as a typical day oh yeah joe you know there's no such thing as a typical <laughs> day. does anybody in any career have a typical day anymore i think uh you know it's uh it's it's a good a good mix of things you know communications it means both being proactive and reactive so it means that you know we have long-range things that we want to share we have you know stories we want to tell so one of those i'll give you an example is uh you know, the, the realities surrounding um, chemical abortion, mm -hmm. sometimes called medication abortion, uh, sometimes called, you know, pill by mail. 
Um, and, you know, of course, chemical abortion uh, is is the newly favored method of, of killing the child by Planned Parenthood and others. Um, for them, it's very simple. It's very clean from their perspective because they can just mail as they, if they get their way fully. Their vi- vision is to be able to mail these deadly pills uh, to patients who will take them. And, you know, for them, it's attractive because if there are complications and there are always complications, um, then the person uh, who's facing those complications faces them alone, which is very attractive to Planned Parenthood because it means that there's no record then of complications in a Planned Parenthood facility. The person just has to go to the ER, right? Uh, or, or whatever, uh, you know, call an ambulance and, and hope for the best. Uh, and so, you know, the reality of that happened recently, I'll share, uh, in, in Argentina, you know, which recently passed limited forms of, uh, of, of lawful abortion. Unfortunately, the first person to die, uh, after that regime came in of legal abortion was uh, one of the abortion activists. She took a chemical abortion pill and she died from complications from it. Um, that was a fatality that occurred not because of um, illegal abortion, but because right. of legal abortion culture. And so that's a, a proactive story we want to tell about the, the real risks and harms of this. And then we have to be reactive to the news of the day. And there's always news of the day. So, yeah, I was wondering, we, we mentioned it earlier. Um, tell us a bit about your podcast, Life, Liberty and Law. What do you what do yeah. you what do you what messages are you, are you seeking to get out from that podcast? Yeah. So Life, Liberty, and Law, we've been doing it for about two years now. And it just, you know, we feature conversations on the human right to life from across the spectrum. And we've been fortunate to speak with so many great people, many uh, actually of which I've seen you've, you've had on your show as well. Uh, so there's some good cross-pollination there. And I think, as you mentioned, that does speak to um, the tight-knit nature of, uh, of the human rights and pro-life communities. Um, but, you know, we also feature um, conversations from our past as an organization. And so, you know, we have, uh, as we were gearing up for this 50th anniversary, we were looking through our own archives, our own library, and we found just incredible material from, you know, champions of the pro-life cause in years past. So we're thinking of folks like in Pennsylvania, uh, Governor Robert P. Casey, a great pro-life champion on the Democratic side of the aisle. Uh, and so, you know, we're going to be releasing an episode soon of, of audio from him where he spoke at an AUL event in the 80s. Uh, we recently released uh, audio of uh, Representative Henry Hyde, uh, who mm-hmm. I'm sure we'll speak about more in a moment or two yeah. about uh, the namesake for the Hyde Amendment. And we, we speak on the news of the day. Uh, so it's, uh, it's a great, uh, great way to engage. And if you're subscribed to Bioethics on Air, you should definitely subscribe to Life, Liberty and Law as well. Yeah, life, liberty, and law. Make sure you subscribe to it. I I do have to say, Tom, that I, I'm always a lot more comfortable on this side of the microphone being the interviewer <laughs> rather than the interviewee. But when it, when we went down and we we recorded that one again a year and a half ago, crazy. Um, you and Noah made it uh, made it very fun. I had, I had a great time doing it. So, um, well, I'm so glad. So maybe again in the future. Who knows? That's right. All right, let's get to uh, let's get to our president. Um, so, Tom. Tell us a bit about Joe Biden's pro-life record. Uh, was he pro-life while he was a, a U.S. senator from Delaware? And was he pro-life as vice president under uh, Barack Obama? You know, Joe, in politics, you know, uh, pragmatism and prudence uh, are often very narrowly defined, right? So <laughs> we know that that prudence classically understood means, you know, doing the most good possible, right, is a short way to understand it. 
But oftentimes, prudence, people think prudence means sort of uh, being uh, as cowardly as necessary, you know, is the way to think about it. What do I have to say in order to get away with, uh, you know, in order to survive this situation? And so, you know, I don't know. I think, you know, when we look at, at uh, Joe Biden's uh, history as a U.S. senator, you know, he was certainly, um, I would say, notionally pro-life as a senator. He voted for things like uh, the Hyde Amendment, you know, for 40 plus years as a senator. Um, that's a good thing. Uh, the Hyde Amendment, you know, prohibits needless taxpayer dollars from funding non-medically necessary abortions. And as we know, every abortion is non-medically necessary. So the Hyde Amendment was was a common sense consensus thing. And Joe Biden supported that. That was really good. He doesn't anymore. But he supported it as a U.S. senator. He voted for it. Um, you know, then we look at something like uh, the 2003 partial birth abortion ban. Joe Biden supported that. Right. So again, pro-life. But, you know, we have to say, when is it um, hard to be pro-life, right? It's, it's when things are hard that um, our sort of true natures, our true beliefs are revealed. Uh, it's the same as, as being a Christian, right? If, if you know, it, all you're called to do is go to church, uh, you know, well, that's, that's not that hard, you know. But if you are facing a situation of, of true martyrdom, either in the sense of, you know, in some of the, the sense of the great, you know, saints and witnesses of our faith, um, you know, of, of something like a crucifixion, you know, uh, or, or stoning, those sorts of things that, that, that's a real sacrifice, you know, versus sort of the, then there are the everyday, uh, opportunities for martyrdom. Um, the martyrdom of maybe being thought as kind of strange or peculiar by your neighbors or by your colleagues or whatever, because you're willing to voice a particular issue. So I think, you know, on the, on the issue of Joe Biden as a U.S. Senator, um, notionally pro-life, um, but certainly, you know, once he became vice president, uh, under president Barack Obama, you know, those convictions seem to fade away. Um, the priorities seem to evaporate and certainly they have, uh, since he uh, ran for and then uh, became president of the United States, we saw that with the reversal on the Hyde amendment, right? Um, where, uh, you know, it was on a rope line at a, at a campaign event, he had like scrawled on a napkin what his new position was. Uh, and I, I personally found that ironic because this is somebody who was presented as sort of worth electing because of his long and known record, right? From the apparent chaos of, of our political life that we knew what we were getting. And here on the issue of the human right to life, Joe Biden reversed 40 plus years of his position and said, well, actually, now I'm for abortion culture. You know, we need it now. Right. And I say, how just on a, on a level of reason do we reconcile a position like that with the idea either that he's acting as a faithful Catholic in the public square? And this is me speaking personally right. because, you know, the AUL is, is secular, not partisan, right. but I'm speaking as a Catholic. Um, so it just, it's just, it's hard to reconcile, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it is. I'm wondering, has Biden's evolution, and I'm thinking during the campaign, um, was this evolution, I, I have my suspicions, and I think a lot of other people have their suspicions, that Joe Biden's evolution on these issues was really pressure from the Democratic Party? Your comment? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you know Joe Biden did what he felt he needed to do to secure uh, victory in first the primary and then, you know, the presidential election. Uh, and that's, that's where that, uh, question of prudence comes in, right? Which right. is that if you're, if your definition of prudence is that you need to do the most good possible, 
Well, the most good possible would have been for him to say firmly, I am the elder statesman of my party. You need me if you want to win the White House. And you're going to have to accept my principled position on pro-life issues that I've held for 40 plus years as a senator. That would have been the prudential thing to do. Um, what he did was was perhaps the the pragmatic, definitely the expedient. Right. Uh, and uh, and so there's no question, though, you know, that this is if you look back just a few years ago, you had um, Hillary Clinton campaigning with the president of Planned Parenthood at the time on the campaign trail. I think in many ways that probably helped cost her the election. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the reality of abortion has been drawn out uh, in a really profound way in recent years. And it's, it's harder, I think, for people to look away. And uh, the, the unfortunate decisions of, of Joe Biden, I mean, I say unfortunate, I, I feel for him on a very human level because it's the pressures that someone at that level of public life is under, especially at his age, are incredible. I mean, crushing, right? And to be able to navigate that successfully, like this, this is, you know, the, the, what we're called to do is, as Christians, we're called to, to live authentically. Uh, and when we can't do that, or when we fall short of that, well, we have confession for that. Uh, and hopefully we go and we reconcile ourselves and try again. But uh, I, I really feel for him because, you know, he's, he, he wanted this thing so badly and now he's got it, but at what cost? Right. Yeah, that that's my thoughts exactly. As as angry, to be honest, and I'll say it, as angry as I am at Joe Biden, um, I have to stop and think and, and just say, talk about someone who's in need of our prayers. Talk about someone who's in need mm -hmm. of fasting for him. I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable. Uh, I know. Ugh. All right, so let's, let's talk about Joe Biden as president of the United States. And let's and to talk about his record on abortion. I'd like to start with the kind of the um, you're known by the company you keep file. So uh, as as president, Joe Biden has surrounded himself with numerous advisors who are, I mean, quite frankly, radical abortion supporters. And I'd just like to, to focus on two of them, if I can, for this conversation. And that would be uh, Kamala Harris and Javier Bracera. Tom, speak to me about uh, Kamala Harris and Javier Bracera. Yeah, I mean, where to start? Uh, Kamala Harris was certainly the most extreme candidate on the issue of abortion in the 2020 field for president. Um, and that was a field dominated by extreme abortion candidates. Again, uh, we can't underscore enough. Joe Biden, who used to be the sort of centrist pro-life type candidate, became himself an extreme abortion candidate. This was the same Joe Biden, by the way, who in 2008, as recently as 2008, uh, before he became Barack Obama's VP, he called, he said, every abortion is a tragedy. That was 12 years ago, right? right? And, and we, see, we, see what, uh, we see what political life did to him. But Kamala Harris never, never began as a pro-life person. Uh, neither did, um, did Becerra. Uh, you know, so I, one anecdote that's, that's sticking out of my mind, I guess, is um, do you remember when Kamala Harris suggested she floated this idea, which we, we haven't heard much about recently, but could come down the pipeline, which is that, you know, she said she would love in her department of justice for any state law that concerned abortion uh, to have to go under review by the Harris or let's say Biden Harris now department of justice 
would have to go to under review before it could go into effect. And, you know, people sort of, you know, look askance at that, right? And they say, well, you know, that sounds unconstitutional, right? It kind of violates the basic principles of federalism if the White House, if the executive branch's Department of Justice is now reviewing state laws before right. state laws can go into effect. But she put this out seriously. This is something that a, a supposedly credible candidate said and, and expected to be taken seriously. Uh, now, t- you know, Kamala... I take solace in this, received fewer electoral votes in the campaign process than Tulsi Gabbard did. Tulsi Gabbard, by the way, I think is a, is a strong pro-life Democrat. Um, but, uh, you know, so I don't think people really bought that. But when we talk about extremism, I mean, Kamala Harris is showing there not just an antipathy toward human rights, the pro-life cause, um, but also an antipathy toward our constitutional system. So this is somebody who has, has explicitly said they're willing to violate the, the, the bedrock principle of federalism, which the entire regime here is, is predicated upon, that states are laboratories of democracy um, in the interest of enforcing, you know, her preferred policy outcomes. Right. We hear a lot about, you know, totalitarianism, dictatorship, all these threats. Definitionally, that's that's the sort of threat. That's the level of threat that a pol- the proposal like that is. I hope we don't hear anything more of it, but we know the idea has at least been put out there, and that itself, I think, is a red flag. Yeah, and on the practical level, we know that she has. Oh, she's opposed um, mandated waiting periods for abortion. She opposes informed consent, parental notification laws. She voted against the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. And she opposes conscience protections for healthcare professionals who don't want to, you know, who don't want to participate in any of these actions. So she's on record as, well, that that's her record. And uh, right, and and she she I think is formed as much by the political culture that uh, she came out of as as anyone. Right, that's that's that area too where I think we have to be mindful of that the way that that culture and law work together to form our, our conscience, uh, to form our perspectives, our sense on what's what's attainable. Um, so in the same way that, that Joe Biden, um, does need our prayers and, and, and our, you know, c- compassion really, uh, you know, people like, like Harris and, and Becerra do as well. So I think right. it, it's important, like we're talking about these things because they matter, like not just to the, the, the polis, uh, the body politic in America, but because they matter for, for these individuals as well. Like right. we, we need, you know. A, a Kamala Harris who comes around on the issue of human rights would be one of the most powerful witnesses we could ever hope for. And that's the sort of hope I think we want to have. Yeah. All right. Speaking of context, um, Kamala Harris came out of California, as did Javier Becerra. So, Tom, tell us a bit about uh, Javier Becerra. Yeah, yeah. Going, yeah unfortunately, I mean, Becerra is, is the definitional shill for the abortion industry. So as, as attorney general of California, this guy sued pro-life First Amendment advocates like David Daleiden. Mm-hmm. Uh, David Daleiden, you know, was a journalist. He re- reported undercover on the abortion industry, um, you know, and and Becerra led the charge um, to prosecute him, uh, to force pro-life pregnancy centers to advertise for abortion services uh, in their own facilities. Now, thankfully, that was knocked down in court. But again, like we want to talk about extremism. Um, violating a basic first amendment principle. Yeah. But that case, I mean, interestingly, the case that you're talking about, that was overturned by the U S Supreme court. I mean, California, the Cal, the, you know, the, the circuit courts and everything else, they said that, you know, forcing pro-life pregnancy centers to advertise abortion in their centers was constitutional. 
And it took the U.S. Supreme Court to to say no, Javier. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I mean, and and this, you know, by the way, he's got a long track record. So going back, I'm thinking of a thing that was just recently in the news, um, you know, concerning uh, now at at HHS, you know, he was asked uh, if he would support because he said in his confirmation hearings, you know, he wants to enforce the laws. Right. And so, so he was asked, you know, does that do, do does that enforcement of the laws include enforcement of the 2003 Partial Birth Abortion Ban Act? Yep, which Congress passed, which was upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court, you know, signed by President Bush at the time. And Becerra responded flippantly, uh, is I guess the best way I could characterize it by saying, "Well, there is no such law." Right. And if you dig into that, you know, you say, "I mean, is this guy crazy? What do you mean there is no such law?" You know, I mean, he voted against it. Right. So he knew that it was at least a proposed law. He, he voted against it. Uh, and, and you know, if you dig into it, you see he's speaking in a very technocratic way of saying, you know, well, the, the way I define partial birth abortion specifically isn't in. But, but what he's doing then is essentially saying that as, you know, uh, HHS chair, uh, he's going to pick and choose, you know, what he wants to prioritize, which to a certain degree is his right. Um, but at least in terms of the public discourse, it's, it's terribly dishonest. Um, it, it furthers polarization. You know, when we have public officials, especially in the executive branch who are misleading the public about the nature of American law, right? Like pro-lifers don't dispute that Roe v. Wade is, is presently a reality. Right. Uh, and, and yet Becerra is disputing that uh, partial birth abortions themselves even happen, right? Uh, it's just it's just flabbergasting. Yeah, uh, we could go on and on. I'm, I'm just, as you were speaking, I was thinking some other members of the Biden administration. I'm thinking Secretary of State Antony Blinken and uh, the United Nations Ambassador uh, Linda Thomas-Greenfield. They are using their positions to promote um, and impose uh, abortion, contraception, transgenderism across the world. So it's his administration isn't. I mean, we're we're focusing on the domestic policy, but on the international level, um, the Biden administration is pushing all of these um, these horrors on the rest of the world as well. Well, that's right. And as you say, Joe, I mean, it's like you 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 judge people fairly by the friends they keep, and uh, and so that's the the area in which the the sort of the best case scenario is that um, when it comes to the pro life issues, that Joe Biden isn't really in charge, um, that he's sort of just outsourced all of these decisions to the people he's hired. But then the problem still remains: he's hired these people, right? Correct. He's put them in these places. Uh, and so in that sense, um, we're judged by our fruits and the fruits of Joe Biden's tenure as vice president and now as president uh, are dramatically different from the Joe Biden that, you know, so many will remember from Delaware. Right. All right. So let's get into some of the things that Joe Biden himself has actually done. So January 22nd, 2021, two days after his inauguration, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris released a statement titled, quote, Statement from President Biden and Vice President Harris on the 48th anniversary of Roe v. Wade, unquote. Tom, what was significant about this very brief communique from the White House? Well, I think first what was significant about it was that it was brief. I mean, in that sense, it was a weak, it was the weakest public statement of support for Roe 
that you could have expected if if you are on the pro-abortion side of this issue you know i'm i'm looking and saying okay the previous president trump spoke publicly for the first time that a, pr- a u.s president has ever done so he spoke and appeared at the march for life in support of human rights and now you know they've got their guy and and their girl in the form of joe biden and kamala harris and you know when it comes when it comes to the 40th anniversary of roe v wade the best they can get is like a one paragraph statement that's sort of revealing in itself i think in the sense of of the administration realizing how dangerous it is for them to be uh, terribly vocal terribly vociferously pro abortion uh, in public you know you didn't see a big video statement for instance is what i mean you didn't see a big public event you didn't see um you know biden or harris standing proudly with the president of planned parenthood as you did in years prior so that in itself i think was a revealing thing but the statement itself was revealing because you know it said and i'll just quote from it here mm-hmm. the biden harris administration is committed to codifying roe v wade and appointing judges that respect foundational precedents like Roe, unquote. So to unpack that, uh, codifying Roe v. Wade, this is something we, we've heard about really in the past five years. What this means simply is that uh, increasingly there's a belief that Roe as jurisprudence is going to go. Um, you know, I was at a National Constitution Center event uh, not long ago where you know the the uh, attorneys who argued on the pro-abortion side of Planned Parenthood v. Casey, they just said openly, you know, we expect Roe to be reversed. Uh, they said it's not a question of when, but if uh, it's not a question of if, but when. And uh, and so the the sentiment is there that you know Roe because it was bad law, even as as the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg said, you know Roe is bad jurisprudence. It's just badly reasoned. Um, but even if you support abortion, then you say, well, what do we do? You know, if, if rule by judicial fiat may be coming to an end, we're going to need rule by executive fiat in order to sustain this. And that's this codifying Roe v. Wade idea, which is that if we can, if we can push abortion into, um, sort of the, the pores of American life enough by executive fiat, um, then, you know, uh, we'll, we'll still get the same end result. And of course, in the meantime, they also want to try to appoint judges, um, that will treat Roe as if it is a foundational precedent. Now, of course, we know it's not a foundational precedent. Uh, we know Roe is unsettled. There's never been a law like it in terms of the immediate reaction against it from the body politic in 1971, uh, as it first started to be, uh, debated, um, in, in, uh, Illinois and elsewhere. And then in 1973, when it was handed down formally, uh, it was heard twice in that period too, in 1972 and three. So even at the time there was this great struggle with this whole concept and it's been contested ever since, ever right. since it hasn't gone away. You know, Clark Forsyth, senior counsel at American Center for life talks about how the court unwittingly made itself, you know, the national abortion control board. Um, with the way that it handles this issue, yeah, right? It has to true. wade in like every three or five years to sort of invent, frankly, uh, new parameters, new terms. You know, in 1973, they based everything around the non-medical trimester framework where, you know, human beings sort of uh, incredibly attained new rights uh, based upon what time of the calendar it was. Uh, and then, of course, in 1992 with Planned Parenthood v. Casey, they, they got rid of that. You know, they jettisoned the trimester thing and they invented a new thing. Um, you know, based upon the idea of, of uh, you know, um, undue burdens, 
and reliance interests saying, well, you know, the, the real thing is that because of our decision in Roe, you know, Americans now rely on abortion. So for better or worse, we need to keep it. And this is what this is what the Biden-Harris administration is speaking into. They want to keep this. They want to promote people who think that Roe is a foundational precedent. But just on a legal matter, uh, it's not settled. It's never been settled. Uh, and as a result, as Amy Coney Barrett recently showed in her confirmation hearings, the mere fact that there's constant, unrelenting conversation around it shows that it does not have precedential force. Yeah. Just a, a, quite a follow-up question on that, Tom. Um, codifying Roe v. Wade, are they, as you understand that term, you mentioned um, executive fiat. Are they, are, are the supporters of abortion looking for a, a, a federal law? Because I'm, I'm, I, always, I always thought of code, codifying Roe v. Wade as being passing federal law that would essentially enshrine abortion uh, in federal law. Is, is that a different understanding or um, comment on that? Yeah, right. We're living through this time now where on so many of the hot button issues, you know, it's like you start off uh, early in the morning thinking one thing is defined one way and then you log on to Merriam-Webster by three in the afternoon and you find out the definition has been changed and updated. Uh, but, you know, I think largely codifying Roe is is meant to mean uh, both. You know, it's the, the, the ideal goal would be what you just described. It would be um, that, that laws would be passed um, saying that, um, that, you know, whatever the, the court has decided, um, that we're, we're now treating this as a, as a truly constitutional matter. Um, the, the more likely outcome is that sort of executive fiat type right. approach, which is just to say, we're going to use every uh, manner of executive order and every federal agency uh, to kind of uh, push this throughout the American culture. And we all know, you know, the Congress has outsourced so much of its, frankly, legal and p- policymaking authority to executive branch agencies that the, the president, uh, whomever he or she is, whatever party he or she is of, uh, does have a, basically a, a sort of both judicial and legislative authority in practice at this point. Yeah. Um, just one other follow-up question that, that comes to mind as, we're, as you were speaking there. There are a lot of states that are passing very good pro-life legislation. I mean, there's heartbeat bills. There's all, there's all sorts of different things that are going on. And some, I don't know about all of them, but some of them have been written specifically to challenge Roe. Now, it's going to take a while for them to come up through the federal court systems and everything else. Where are we with um, these state laws challenging Roe? Um, you know, you mentioned before that the, the, a lot of scholars think that Roe is going to be overturned. Is this the vehicle? Are these state laws the vehicle that's going to do that? And 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 what do you what do you how do you how do you see the future? Yeah, it's such an important question. You know, the U.S. Supreme Court needs uh, needs something to take up, right? It needs some controversy uh, to resolve uh, in order to to touch this. Now, the law, you know, doesn't need to even concern abortion directly. You know, as the Supreme Court, you know, it could take uh, hypothetically a law concerning anything. I mean, any any matter that even tangentially could touch upon the issue of abortion, and they could use that um, to sort of say, oh, and by the way, like we've also made this decision. Uh, so, you know, the, the, there's a lot of latitude that you have uh, when you're uh, on the U.S. Supreme Court to do those sort of things. But the states, no doubt, play a huge role in kind of giving them the opportunity. You know, many think that, yeah, sort of a, a frontal assault approach is the best approach, which is, you know, that there are, as you say, some governors even who signed uh, pro-life bills and they say, you know, this is going to be the thing that, that challenges Roe. 
Now, fair enough. Um, you know, those things are, are good. We should be challenging Roe, but it's important to remember that it's not a governor or a state lawmaker um, or a pro-life, you know, attorney or solicitor general who decides what challenges Roe. The U.S. Supreme Court is going to decide the cases and the controversies that it takes up, and you know, uh, it, it's kind of questionable, especially if you're the chief justice, um, or frankly, if you are, um, you know, a, a justice who is skeptical about Roe and that jurisprudence, that if you're handed something that is sort of a hot potato right from the beginning, right? It's, it's sort of, if you're sort of like challenged, right? Like meet me out at high noon for the duel. Is that the best approach to get the Supreme Court to actually agree and take that case? You know, it might not be, um, but there is tremendous momentum. Um, as you say, heartbeat bills. Um, there, there were 57 pro-life bills passed across 18 states and there are also nine pro-life resolutions. So resolution is, is not a law, but an right. important public statement, um, you know, across these states, 57 just in this 2021 state legislative session. Um, you compare that, you say, how many, you know, are there on the other side? Six, uh, six anti-life bills in five states and one anti-life resolution. So you look at 57 to six, <laughs> you know, and you say, where's the momentum? And you compare that as well just to the past few years, and you've got hundreds of pro-life, uh, you know, bills, um, but also resolutions being advanced across uh, dozens of states. And that alone is an important signal to the Supreme Court, right? No matter what case it might end up taking, ultimately, it's a signal about where is the culture trending? Right. Uh, and so, you know, th those things uh, are examples of why keeping up the momentum is so important uh, to give the Supreme Court kind of the biggest basket of options to choose from. Uh, and, and we hope that they ultimately do choose um, the right case. Yeah. Just uh, jumping off on that. So we're recording this podcast on May 14th of 2021. And just recently, the uh, Guttmacher Institute came out uh, with a report and they actually set a line in it. This, I'm, I'm not quoting it, but it's kind of paraphrasing. They were saying that 2021 um, is, in their estimation, the biggest and perhaps most dangerous um, year for pro-life bills coming out of states. So if, if that's true, and it seems to be, Tom, that seems to be what you're saying, that's actually good news to hear Guttmacher say that. No, that's right, right? And that explains also why there's this sudden interest in codifying Roe uh, and why you know, you're seeing it in response, essentially, because these states, these pro-life states have been codifying life. Uh, and, and folks on the other side are realizing we've got a problem here. Um, and, and you're seeing also, as you mentioned, the, the threat of the international expansion. That's another level, another dimension of the human rights pro-life fight is folks are realizing if, if the states themselves, if the American people reject abortion, well, if we can get an international consensus that there's a right to abortion, then we can force it back onto America from that angle. And so that's why those, those appointments that President Biden makes or that any president makes are critical. Right now, uh, we're not in a good situation, but we can continue to speak out about it. This concludes part one of my interview with Tom Shakley. In part two, Tom and I explore how through executive order, policy, and legislation, Joe Biden has both promoted and expanded abortion since his inauguration as president. For more information on these topics and other bioethical issues, please visit our website, ncbcenter.org, and subscribe to our publications, Ethics and Medics, and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. The views expressed on Bioethics on Air are not necessarily those of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. If you have comments or questions about this or any of our podcasts, 
or if you would like to subscribe to our Bioethics Public Policy Report, please contact me, your host, Joe Zalot, at jzalot at ncbcenter.org. For archived editions of our podcasts, please go to our website, hover on the Blogs and Podcasts button, and then click Bioethics on Air. Finally, please remember that the NCBC has a 24-hour consultation service. You can contact us by phone at 215-877-2660 or by going to our website, again, ncbcenter.org, and clicking on Ask a Question. Thank you for listening, and may God's peace be with you.